0: case, no. Thank you very much, John. Uh, so, it's yes, the nature of God in the Old and New Testaments, and as the uh, well, sort of headline-grabbing title puts it, is God nasty in the Old Testament, nice in the New? Uh, I think that's a sort of bit of a stereotype, perhaps, of Uh, the sort of thing that I think crosses a lot of people's minds when they read the Bible, the sort of thing that a lot of the new atheist writers will come out with in particular. And this is a very famous quote now, or notorious quote, from Richard Dawkins, from his book, The God Delusion, where he says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously, malevolent, bully. (laughs) However, Jesus does get rather a better deal from Mr. Dawkins. He praises the moral superiority of Jesus, who, of course, according to Christians, is God, is divine. Jesus, uh, if he existed, let's set that to one side, was surely one of the great ethical innovators of history. He says the Sermon on the Mount is way ahead of its time. He's turned the other cheek, anticipated Gandhi and Martin Luther King by 2,000 years. It was not for nothing I wrote an article called Atheists for Jesus and was later delighted to be presented with a t-shirt bearing the legend. He describes Jesus as a charismatic young preacher who advocated generous forgiveness and praises Jesus for his genuinely original and radical ethics. So is there a mismatch between the character of God that we would glean from reading the Old Testament, as Christians would call it, the Jewish scriptures, and from looking in the New Testament, particularly at Jesus. One way to kind of bring this out is to compare, as uh, some might be wont to do, various Old Testament and New Testament texts. So in column 1 over here we have uh, things like Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as examples to those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. Or, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And on the other hand, we get things like, The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love. Give thanks to the Lord for his good. His love endures forever. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native. You shall love him as yourself. Now, as I gleaned, some of you may have noticed. The first column is, of course, all quotes from the New Testament. And the second column are all quotes from the Old Testament. So you do have to be wary in this field of what a scientist might call data picking. And just uh, stacking your decks by referring to only particular texts, um, particularly texts out of a context, of course, becoming a pretext for meaning whatever you want. So we have to be careful of that and take a, a, a balanced overall view of these things if I kind of try and make the question a little bit more precise, uh, as my philosophical instincts drive me so to do, I might ask, is God different in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament? Well, was God himself different? Well, I I think not. Certainly, if Christianity is true, you'd have to hold that God himself doesn't change in his fundamental nature and character. But there's a slightly different question that we can ask, that is, was God perceived or presented differently in the Old Testament as compared to the New Testament? And there, I think the Christian answer has to be yes, at least to a degree. What I'm really kind of introducing here is the concept made famous by theologian Charles Hodge of progressive revelation. Hodge wrote that the progressive character of divine revelation is recognized in relation to all the great doctrines of the Bible. What at first is only obscurely intimated is gradually unfolded in subsequent parts of the sacred volume until the truth is revealed in its fullness. And of course for the Christian, the fullness of God's truth incarnated in the flesh is Christ, the word of God incarnate. That is the fundamental word, the logos, as John puts it in the beginning of John's Gospel of God. So it seems plausible to think that God God seems to have started where the people that he was interacting with were in their ancient Near East culture. But he was interrelating with them, acting with them, revealing himself to them, to move them to a greater understanding of who he was and where he wanted them to be. Just a few examples of the progressive nature of revelation in the Bible. The Old Testament, for example, lacks much, if any, concept of an afterlife. There are certainly phases of the Old Testament that are very um, interestingly uh, putting the idea that, well, there isn't, there isn't an afterlife. This is uh, Isaiah chapter 38, verse 18. For the grave cannot praise you, death cannot sing your praises, talking to God, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. You can't have a relationship with God once you're dead. But of course, in Christian Revelation, climaxes the end of Revelation with the whole new heavens and earth where God will be the God of the people who are there and there will be a relationship with God beyond death. Death, where is thy sting? And whilst you might argue that it's foreshadowed in certain Old Testament passages, the idea of a Trinitarian concept of God, three divine persons in one divine personal being, only becomes clear in the New Testament revelation, of course. So there is a development in the understanding and presentation of God. That's why we, when we look at the Bible and try to understand it, deploy, the theologians call it hermeneutics, uh, lay people just simply translate that as how to read text right uh, and we kind of come up with various uh, commonsensical rules of thumb for understanding this literature from an ancient and somewhat alien culture things like consider the relationship between the whole of the revelation and the parts where are they in that revelation historically and so on read the obscure in light of what's clear you wouldn't do it the other way around Um, Interpret through the person of Jesus if he is the final revelation of God. And notice that the new can reinterpret or qualify or even replace the old. I'm just going to focus on two of these in the rest of the talk. The relationship between the whole and the part. I think this is a very important one. Psalm 14 verse 1, after all, says, There is no God. Well, it says, fools say in their heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, and there is no one who does good. You know. Uh, so you can obviously mistake what is being communicated by just focusing on a part to the exclusion of the whole of which it is a part. But what goes for single verses should I think go for whole books if you just read the book of Ecclesiastes in the wisdom literature and looked at its, of its view of the religious life and it's kind of portrait of a very sort of distant deistic God that you can't really know much about or have any interaction with it's rather sort of depressed tone of life and so on well, you know, maybe it's a useful contrast to have in the Revelation To make you so glad that the rest of the revelation tells you that actually you can know God and relate to him. And he is interested in you and life does have meaning and purpose because you can uh, relate to your creator and so on. But what goes for verses and books goes for entire testaments. Therefore, of course, what goes for whole books goes for the whole of the two Testaments the old and the new what about this uh, final one here reinterpreting qualifying or replacing the old as progressive revelation goes on Paul Copan and I recommend this book to you if there's one thing to read on this whole sort of area of some of the oddities to us of various bits of the Old Testament and the moral questions in particular Um, is God a moral monster by Paul Copan is the book to get. And he notices that Sinai legislation, that is the Ten Commandments and so on, make a number of moral improvements without completely overhauling ancient Near East social structures and assumptions. God meets his people where they are while seeking to show them a higher ideal in the context of ancient Near Eastern life. And he does a very interesting job in the book of comparing the Old Testament law codes and so on to various other uh, ancient law codes. As we move through scripture, suggests Copan, we witness a moral advance, a movement towards restoring the Genesis ideals. And he actually points out that the, the Genesis account... Of the creation of the world and of people and the relationship they're to have with God and each other and the world around them is the ideal presented by the Old Testament. And then after that, God is working in a less than ideal circumstance to kind of make the best, to make better of a bad situation, as it were. In Matthew, a couple of verses from Matthew where Jesus is teaching and he says things like, it it has been said, quote from the Old Testament, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce from Deuteronomy 24. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. He says, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives But from the beginning, it has not been this way. That's not God's ideal, that there be divorce. But nevertheless, God did work within the less than ideal situation in order to mitigate the problems of that less ideal situation. But nevertheless, it's not what we should be aiming at. So the law is presented in the Old Testament itself As self-consciously a kind of temporary and less than ideal, but nonetheless very useful for certain purposes, uh, set of strictures. This is from uh, Jeremiah 31, quite a famous passage talking about the day will come when a new covenant comes from God. I'll make a new covenant and I'll put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they'll be my people and they won't try and teach their neighbours they'll say to each other know the Lord because they will all know me all the members of this new covenant will know God personally it's obviously the, the Christian covenant the, the, the Christ centred new covenant that he declared in the last supper this is a new covenant in my blood and my flesh so that's another thing to take into account, the difference between those two covenants and that they've got very different sort of um, short-term aims, even though both of them are feeding into each other in terms of the long-term goal, as it were. God's Old Testament covenant with a, was a, a sort of socio-political marriage between God and a certain ethnic group, Israel, and that differs from Jesus' new covenant which is the fulfilment of that Old Testament uh, covenantal process but itself pointed beyond (laughs) itself but it's a covenant to bless as God said to Abraham all people from all ethnic groups with a personal relationship with God in Christ so learning from the original cultural context often helps we get more understanding as we do that, and I'll just say a few words about war in the Old Testament. Uh, next week, Tony Watkins is going to be able to go into a bit more depth, particularly on the uh, the so-called slaughter of the Canaanites, as it's known. Uh, but Israel's enemies were both a political and a spiritual threat to Israel, but that, given the covenant, meant a threat to God's plan of progressive revelation as well so it's important to overcome those kind of obstacles and Canaanite religious practices well known uh, included things like William Blake's picture here of child sacrifice Um, in the ancient Near East we know it was common to exaggerate claims about victory in battle, a fine example from the book of Joshua in the Bible chapter 10 verse 20 so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach their, reach their fortified cities. Hang on, if you defeated them completely, how come some of them are getting away? You know. um, Professor Kenneth Kitchen, who's uh, an uh, Egyptologist, points out that the type of rhetoric was a regular feature of military reports that we read in all of the cultures around this time. Um, In the 15th century, um, Egyptian Pharaoh Thutmophis III boasted that his army uh, of Mitanni was overthrown, annihilated totally, like those now non-existent. Whereas in fact, we know from other sources that there were continuation of uh, Mitanni's army. Uh, King of Moab uh, in about 840 boasted that Israel has utterly perished for always. Clearly, a little bit overblown. Um, But that's just how war reports were written back then. And so, when we read things in the Bible, in the book of Joshua and so on, giving a war report saying stuff like, We completely annihilated them, we slaughtered them, we were completely victorious, you know, and we read that with our modern eyes as a literal report, uh, uh, therefore, you know, they were engaging in genocide, within the cultural context of the ancient Near East, it may very well not actually be. Something that we should be taking literally in that manner. Uh, Copan goes into this a bit more. He says the language of all men and women and so on is stereotypical expressions. And it also points out that um, although we translate the term as city, we talk about the city of Jericho and so on, and we get this impression that, well, a city is a city, isn't it? You know, they attacked the city, that must mean they were slaughtering civilians. But in that culture, the civilians were the farmers who lived in the farming country around the central governmental stronghold in the middle, where the soldiers and the king and the administration kind of was. So it's probably better to translate it as the fort rather than the city or something like this. Uh, indeed, all the archaeological evidence, says Copan, indicates that no civilian populations existed at Jericho or Ai or the other cities mentioned in Joshua. These differences that we might perceive, if, even if they're genuine uh, perceptions of, of a difference, I think can be taken into account by the notion of progressive revelation, and they're all going to be particular examples particular issues of what we might more generally call the problem of evil but it's interesting to note that among philosophers of religion dealing with the actual kind of trying to lay out an an argument from evil against the believability of a god at least say that there's pretty much unanimous agreement on all sides of the debate that the so-called logical problem of evil that says there's a, a contradiction between evil and god just doesn't work and that even the the evidential argument that says it it kind of calls into question God's goodness at least somewhat doesn't have all that much uh, going for it. Just to summarise that from Michael Tooley there. So I've obviously only been able to scratch the surface of some of the things that Richard Dawkins uh, brings out. Um, If you want to go into more uh, detail, let me recommend Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster?, and also come back next week for more on Uh, The Canaanites and war in the Old Testament and so on from, uh, from Tony Watkins.